Good morning. Yes, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the preachers here. It is good to see you. Today, we're going to be reading Psalm 46. So if you'd like to read with me, you can open your Bibles or direct your attention up here. Hear the word of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been considering the rhythms of the Christian life, and we've talked about worship, and we've talked about prayer, and what we've been saying is that these practices, as important as they are, do not transform us when we engage in them intermittently. I mean, that's what we want, right? We want to give ourselves to these practices when things get hard, uh, something spins out of control. We want to go to prayer and worship, both, and we want to have things change in a moment. But that's kind of like feeling weak in your body and then going out to work out really hard. Like, if I do that, then three things happen immediately. Number one, it only reinforces how weak I am. Number two, afterward, I don't feel a single bit stronger And number three, it actually devastates my body with soreness. Exercising is a rhythm that only bears fruit over time, not in one-off bursts. And that's essentially what we're trying to say about spiritual rhythms as well. They transform us over time through regular rhythms. If I'm buffeted on all sides with anxiety, if I feel like I'm drowning under the weight of anxiety, and I go to pray or to worship without a rhythm, it'll feel just like exercising. It'll, it'll feel awkward. It, it actually helps very little. It only serves to emphasize how weak I am and how shy my soul is to be in the presence of God. So we give ourselves to these ancient rhythms that have been practiced by God's people throughout the ages. And in doing so, we find that we are transformed over time. So today, we're going to consider the rhythm of silence and solitude. And when Matt initially assigned me this topic, I feel like I say this at least once a month. When Matt initially signed me this topic, uh, I told him I didn't think it was a good idea. (laughs) Because, listen, there are actually zero imperatives in the scripture for us to have and enter a rhythm of silence and solitude. 
I mean, I know that Jesus went off to pray by himself and the men, the gospel writers tell us this, but it doesn't mean that he's commanding us to do that. It's like, oh, that's a good, he did it, that's a good idea, but there's no commands to tell us to go be silent and to be uh, in solitude. But the further I got on this topic, the more I realized that even though there are no imperatives here, even though there are no commands for us to engage in this kind of rhythm, in a rhythm of silence and solitude, this rhythm is really the only way that we will enter the confidence of God's provision in which we are commanded to abide. It's the only way. And the more I explore this, the more I realize that silence and solitude are actually one of the central acts of the Christian life. In fact, if we don't give ourselves to this rhythm, we will almost certainly never have the confidence and that trust in God's provision and protection for our lives that we so desperately long for. And so we need to understand this invitation, and we desperately need to give ourselves to it. So in order to do that, let's consider this psalm under three headings. Number one, the insecurity of the world. Number two, the security of God's dwelling. And then number three, how we leave that insecurity of the world and enter into the security of God's dwelling. So first, let's talk about the insecurity of the world. And we see that in the psalm that we just read in verses two and three. It says, therefore, we will not fear. Now, we'll get to that part in a minute. But why, why are they not fearing? In, in, in what context? Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, you have to understand how ancient Jews understood the sea, the water, the ocean. To them, the sea was the keeper of chaos. There were evil and chaotic forces buried in the sea. And so in this verse here, the psalmist acknowledges what all of God's people already feared and understood, that the chaotic waters would rise up and consume the mountains in its depth. That's what they feared with the sea. It's an image of profound insecurity and fear. And by the way, that's why for example, when Jesus comes walking on the water to his disciples, it doesn't say they were amazed. Like, oh, wow, look at that. How does the water, and they, it says they were terrified. You remember this? It says they were terrified. We who don't hold the same beliefs about the sea might see Jesus walking on the water and go, wow, that's amazing. But they were terrified because they were convinced that this being walking upon the sea toward them was some kind of manifestation of the evil and chaos that lurked below the surface of the waters, and it was coming directly for them. And so this image of the chaotic waters of the earth swallowing the mountains that we just saw in verses two and three is just a symbol for the profound anxieties and fears and insecurities that come with living on this earth. Now, we who live so long after this psalm was written, we don't share the object of the psalmist's fear, but we certainly understand the reality of the fear. 
We don't fear that the seas are going to consume the earth. Well, I don't know, maybe rising sea levels, but, you know, whatever. We don't fear that those seas are going to come, you know, destroy all of our cities and consume the earth, but we know what anxiety means. We know what insecurity means. And what's interesting is that at the turn of the 20th century, people in general were profoundly optimistic about the progress of the world. You know, a couple hundred years before, the Enlightenment had given us all these sort of thinky-thinky principles that we applied to social situations, and we got liberty and, and freedoms now from government structures. Science had advanced to such a degree that, that we started to believe that we could really, through this new methodology, bring the utopia that we all longed for upon the earth. Medical technology had given us longer lives and healthier lives and happier lives. Assembly lines had given us consumer products that made, more life, that made life more comfortable and pleasant. And at the turn of the 20th century, we were nearly at the pinnacle of human flourishing. Now, of course, caveat, there were plenty of people suffering injustice and wrongs and all that sort of thing in that age. But from the middle and upper classes, at least, this was the prevailing view. All is well, and we are almost there. But then, in June of 1914, the successor to the Austrian throne was assassinated in the streets of Sarajevo, and what should have, by all measures, remained a local conflict erupted into violence and chaos, and that became World War I. Millions of people across Europe and across the world died in trenches. Their bodies were laying upon the scorched earth filled with bullets or, or lungs filled with gas. It was a horrific scene. And though peace was eventually reached in 1918, the optimism that came at the turn of the century was destroyed. And then, in the years after the war, the world was plunged into economic destruction when first the United States, who had been supplying Europe with the cash to rebuild after the, world, after the First World War, the United States entered the Great Depression. And then the rest of Europe, who was relying on U.S. money to rebuild, when that money dried up, the whole world sank into economic depression and will. And into the midst of that profound economic suffering, strong men like Benito Mussolini, Francisco Franco, Adolf Hitler, they all came and rose up to solve their people's problems. But their solutions only increased the destruction of human life until we found ourselves in yet another cataclysmic world war. And in order to end that war, the United States introduced the result of the destructive nature of what science could actually do, it gave us the tools to create instability in the atomic world and created weapons of mass destruction. And now we get the Cold War and the question we wake up with every morning because these nuclear weapons have been introduced into the world and now there's an arms race to see who can proliferate these horrifying weapons the fastest. Now the question we wake up with every morning is, is this the day that we're going to blow up? Then there was the Korean War and the Vietnam War. There's protests at home. There's leaders getting assassinated one after the other. There's recessions. Then there's attacks in New York and in the Pentagon. There's another recession. There's a global pandemic. There's partisan politics. No wonder the poet W.H. Auden called this age after World War II the age of anxiety. 
In other words, we are in constant anxiety that the chaotic waters of the sea will arise and swallow the mountains. Now, I'm not saying we don't have any peace in this life and even some happiness, but under it all is a profound insecurity and fear about life. And the whole point is that such fear did not come to us ex nihilo, out of nothing. We inherited it from our grandparents and from our parents and the generations before them. This world is overflowing with chaos and it is a fearful thing just to be alive. Any Enneagram sixes with me here? (laughs) And our tools for overcoming this anxiety actually serve to increase the anxiety, not to diminish it. We Google things endlessly to feel like we have a hold on the chaotic waters of the earth. We Google the symptoms of disease. We Google the causes of the war in Ukraine. We gather all the information we can about political candidates and the controversies in our nation, but once we've gathered all we can, the information just reinforces the fact that we are living in a world profoundly beyond our control. But the psalmist goes on to explain a competing reality. This is the reality in which we live, but there is another reality. And so number two, the security of God's dwelling. Look at verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Now, what is the city of God that he's talking about here? The obvious answer is Jerusalem, the ancestral city of the Jews. But what's strange here is he says that there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And the reason that's strange is because there's actually no river feeding into Jerusalem. So what's going on here? Well, here's where I tell you that in the Old Testament the city of God actually referred to two different realities. The first, it it referenced Jerusalem, yes. That was the city that was built with brick and stone. You could go visit it today. But it also referred to Zion, which we would say is spiritual Jerusalem. It was the place where God dwelt. And that's what the psalmist is emphasizing here because he says at the end of verse four, the holy habitation of the most high. He's talking about Zion. And these two concepts, they they indicated the same place on earth. But the first emphasizes the physical city itself while the second emphasizes the city as God's dwelling place on earth. And if you know that, then the river piece makes all the sense in the world. Remember in Genesis 2, we're told that the garden, into the garden of God's presence, it was watered by rivers that flowed out of Eden and into the garden. Remember that in John's apocalyptic vision in Revelation 22, verse 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street also... In the middle of the street of the city 
Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The river of life that brings healing to the nations flowed out from the throne of God to water the city of God to bring healing and flourishing to all who sit beside its waters in the everlasting kingdom of God. And this is the reality that the psalmist is contending with here in Psalm 46. All the kingdoms that I can see with my eyes, all the kingdoms totter. The seas threaten to engulf the mountains, and yet the Most High God dwells among us, and his dwelling place makes us glad in the midst of chaos. And that reality leads us to the refrain of this psalm, which is repeated no less than three times in this short span of verses. The refrain is this, verse one. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verse seven. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In other words, the only place of security and safety and peace is within the saving refuge of God. That is the only place the people of God have access to this security. In the midst of all the chaos, the only place where even the dissolution of the earth will not change our trust into fear is within the loving protection and refuge of the Lord of hosts. Now, don't you want that kind of confidence? I do. Don't you want that kind of peace in the midst of a world that does nothing except agitate our anxieties? Don't you long to sit beside the waters of the river whose streams make glad the city of God and feel that you are protected, come what may? So how do we enter that kind of protection? Well, that brings us to number three. And let me tell you, the answer is found in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, as I mentioned before, I don't think this is an imperative to introduce a rhythm of silence and solitude into your life. This is not saying that every morning we should get alone and stay there for a period of time and be silent. But while it doesn't say that exactly, let me show you why I think something like that is very much implied here. When God says to the psalmist, be still and know that I am God, we can't remove that from the context in which it occurs. This verse is a darling of more contemplative folks. Okay, so you know we get quiet and we get alone and we know that he is God? Hmm. What does that even mean? You know, I'd be like, have you ever tried this? If you've seen this as an imperative, have you ever tried? Know that I am, what does that mean? I'm a practical man, I'm not a mystic, although I wish I could enter more deeply into the mystic's relationship with God, but nevertheless, that's not what God is asking of the psalmist here. In order to understand what that means, notice 
the language in the psalm that I didn't really emphasize earlier. The psalmist calls God the Lord of hosts. That's a military term. The hosts of Israel's army, the hosts of heavenly angels. The Lord is the Lord of the hosts. It's a military term. He fights at the head of his angelic armies on behalf of the downtrodden and the destitute. And then in verse 8 and 9, we see this. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The point is, the psalmist is exulting in the way that God fights for his people. Not only is God a saving refuge for those who hide themselves in him, not only is he a a defensive place for them, but he also goes out at the head of his armies and he fights for his people. And with him, the battle is won without our effort. Look, verse six, the nation's rage, the kingdom's totter, He utters his voice, and the earth melts. It's not hard for him. He just speaks a word, and the earth melts. All the fearful events that plague our lives come to an end. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name, and he fights to protect his people, the downtrodden and the destitute, from the terrors of the earth. Now, do you remember when God brought his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, after the great judgments of God had come down upon that city? And do you remember, as they are leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind. Like, wait a minute, what am I doing? This is my entire labor force, and they're just leaving. And so he gets his host of armies, And he starts pursuing God's people in order to reclaim them. This is the most fearful situation you could possibly imagine. The armies of Pharaoh, Egypt was a great nation in those days. It was a magnificent military, one of the greatest on earth, and that very military is now in hot pursuit of God's people, who, by the way, were formerly enslaved and therefore had no fighting experience whatsoever. And when they find themselves with their backs to the Red Sea, the chariots of Pharaoh bearing down upon them, the panic overtakes them. Listen, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried to the Lord. They said to Moses, this is amazing, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The defeat of an army greater than you does not require your strength or your innovative strategic wisdom. All you must do is be silent and watch the Lord work for you. Watch the Lord fight on your behalf. And that is exactly what he did. The pillar of cloud moved between God's people and the Egyptians. And the Lord told Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea And by the power of God, the sea parted and his people walked through it in safety to the other side. And then when the Egyptians came to pursue them, the waters slammed shut and God was victorious on behalf of his people. And when they get to the other side, rescued by the might of God, Moses and the rest of the congregation, as is appropriate, sings a song. Listen to this song, Exodus 15, verse, starting in verse one. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. What an astonishing transformation before the Red Sea. Is it just because there's not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to be buried? And then at the end, when they have seen the salvation of their God, when they were silent and watched the deliverance of God on their behalf, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And so when God says to the psalmist, be still and know that I am God, here's what he means. It is only in the stillness that you will remember that it is God who fights for you. It is only in the stillness that you will remember that God fights for you. Every fearful event that happens in this world, every anxiety that plagues us, all of this that comes to bear upon our lives has one universal result, to convince us that if we are going to be okay in this world, in the midst of all of this chaos, we must fight for ourselves. To be still in the midst of chaos is the most ridiculous sounding thing imaginable. That's the most ridiculous response to events that threaten to overwhelm us and destroy everything that we hold dear. No, we've got to fight. We've got to conquer this chaos. I mean, think of how ridiculous it must have sounded to the Israelites standing there at the other side of the Red Sea. The greatest army in the world is bearing down upon you with either the intent to kill you or bring you back into slavery. And he says, be at peace. Be silent. 
and watch the Lord fight for you. God says, you are my people and I will fight for you. You have only to be still and witness the triumph of the Lord. It is only in the stillness that you will remember that it is God who fights for you. But let's take that one step further. The psalmist exalted in Zion, the city of God, the place on earth that God had chosen to dwell with his people on the earth. But when we get to the New Testament, the dwelling of God is not in a place, but in a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, if you remember, he was walking through Herod's temple with his disciples, and he looks around at the stones, and he says, you know what? Tear this building down, and I will rebuild it in three days. And the Pharisees who hear him are both confused and incensed at such a statement. Like, it's taken us 40 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? And Jesus doesn't answer. But the gospel writer, John, he does answer. He gives us a little parenthetical statement where he says, but he was not talking about the temple built of stones and masonry. He was talking about the temple of his body. He would raise the temple of his body in three days. And so what we see here is Jesus claiming that he himself is the dwelling place of God. It's gone from being a place where God's people go to a person that God's people must trust. And indeed, Christ came to defeat an enemy far more powerful or deadly than any Egyptians. He came to defeat sin and death. And when his body was lifted upon the cross, the apostle Paul teaches us that he became sin and that he bore the judgment of God upon the tree in his own body. He absorbed it all into himself, and then he died. But three days later, he rose the temple back to life. He conquered the grave, conquering death forever. And in those two acts, his death and his resurrection, we have a sure, steadfast monument, a memorial that we can go and we can look at and say without any equivocation, without any doubt, it is the Lord who fights for us. He is a warrior, and he fights for his people. And isn't that the very definition of salvation that we just experienced with these baptisms? We have no share in the fight that conquered sin and death. We have no righteous works to help weigh down the scale in God's eyes in our favor. It was the Lord who fought for us and achieved this victory in the person and work, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ while we were his enemies. And so if that's true, hear these words again. He says, be still and know that I am God. It is only in the stillness that any of us can remember that it is God who fights for us. Now, to be clear, I'm not, I'm not arguing for inaction here. There's much we can do to alleviate the suffering, the chaos of our own lives. That's true. But not, 
my guess is none of us have to be reminded to act. What we have to be reminded of is to cease our action, to be still, to be silent, because only in the stillness and only in the silence are we reminded that it is God who fights for us. Therefore, there is great wisdom and entering to a regular rhythm of silence and solitude. Otherwise, in our weakness, we are always going to forget that it's the Lord who fights for us. When we give ourselves to moments of stillness in our lives, we find that it becomes possible to say with the psalmist, oh, the Lord is our refuge. The Lord is our strength. And so I would say that this needs to be in, the li- in our lives every day because the anxiety and the tumult of the earth never ceases to assault our trust in the Lord's saving defense of our lives. And so, I don't know, start with five minutes? I don't know. A, five minutes a day, but make no mistake. The invitation is clear. It is only in the stillness. It is only in the silence that we will remember that it is God who fights for us. Amen. Now we come to the table, as we do each and every week, and the message of this table is clear. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. Be at peace when you come here. The message of this table is the Lord has fought for you and the Lord will continue to fight for you. With this bread and this cup, we are reminded that the greatest enemies that roar against our souls have been defeated. Sin was judged in Christ's atoning work on the cross and now he brings us to this table to remind us that all is forgiven. What, however your heart accuses you, you're, you are forgiven by his saving death and resurrection. And then death itself was defeated in his resurrection. And that's why he tells us to eat and drink in this table until he himself can sit down with us in the everlasting kingdom of God and eat the meal with us. And in that day, we will understand that this meal that we got to take every single week was just a taste of the future in which we will sit beside the streams that water the city of God and that make that city glad. So, if you want to know what the gladness of the future tastes like, then this table is for you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I don't need to convince anybody that our lives feel full of chaos. But what we always need reminding is that you fight for us. You fought for us and the generations that have come before us in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Father, we are so forgetful. We need to be reminded of this every single day, multiple times a day, or else we will forget. So I pray that you would bring us into the grace of remembering. And now as we come to the table of your son, meet us here and remind us that the Lord is our refuge. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, come taste the refuge of God. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ.